Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Colleen, we're doing Revelation chapter 8 today. Are you nervous? A little. I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) It starts to get very... very interesting, yes. but it's exciting as you walk through it with good teachers and a good hermeneutic, all the stuff that, that you begin to see. It, it's a little less scary, so true. we will move through one step at a time. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to ask you, we're reading about a lot of judgment now. Yes, Moving we forward, we're going to start getting some of the details out of the trumpets and then move into the woes and the bulls. So here's my question for you. Okay. When you were an Adventist and you would hear about Revelation, the things that were going to take place on earth, did you understand these terrible judgments as coming from God or as being allowed by God and coming from Satan? Um, The latter, I believe. I don't remember thinking through too much about the actual judgments of the book of Revelation, but in general, everything bad that happened was from Satan. And it was because of God allowing it, and it was all because of the great controversy worldview. God had to limit his sovereignty and his power in order to allow evil to do the worst it could possibly do, in spite of Satan's consummate evil and consummate deception, that there would be people who would still be loyal to Jesus and keep his law and thus vindicate his character. I mean, there was always that vindicating of the character involved. And that God was the good guy, and Satan was the bad guy, and Satan was in the business of deceiving mankind about who God was, and we were in the business of showing we were loyal, so that at the end of all things, after the worst Satan could do, we would be left standing there going, God is good, and it would be proven to the universe because we saw through the deception. Mm -hmm. What about you? Well, you know, before I read the book of Revelation in my 20s, all of my pictures and ideas about last day events came from the great controversy worldview and what was told to me growing up. And so from that perspective, my thoughts about end times, they were very earthbound. You know, I, I had no concept of anything going on in heaven in the throne room related to the judgments on earth. I just knew we had special knowledge about how human history was going to unfold against the people of God. And so the heart of that was the mark of the beast, which was related to Satan and his power and the Antichrist. And so all of that was very demonic and dark and evil. And Mm -hmm. so I thought all of this wrath that was going to come against God's people and all of the things that were going to happen on earth were just the natural progression of sin. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't believe I was ever taught about what was going on in the throne room. The first I heard about it actually was last week when you read Ellen White's commentary on Jesus as the restrainer in the holy place. Right. So I really didn't have a throne room vision of end time events. But no, I didn't either, come to think of it. But when I was in my 20s and I read Revelation as an Adventist, when I completed the book and was on the floor shaking and crying at that time, I knew it came from God because that's what the Bible said. Yeah, God was pouring his wrath out, his judgments. He was unleashing his judgments. I didn't know anything beyond that. I just knew that it was as if this God of the Old Testament, because I had him separated in my head, oh, yeah. God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, and then come revelation, wait a minute, we have the God of the Old Testament back and we have <laughs> to give an account to him. 
Mm-hmm. And so this grace that I had come to understand or thought I understood in Adventism, the, the grace of the New Testament, it was almost like it was just a grace period. And so I got okay. pretty nervous. I was pretty shook. Well, you know, I think you're not alone. I think you uh, really do represent most of Adventists in what you just described. It's been very interesting to me that, <laughs> surprise, surprise, Loma Linda University Church is having a camp meeting special session through the book of Revelation. Randy Roberts is teaching it at this moment. So this past Saturday, I listened online to Randy Roberts teach through Revelation 6. Well, we just did that two weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. And in Revelation 6, we saw the four horsemen, we saw the souls under the altar, and then we saw the sixth seal opened where the wicked are calling for the rocks to fall on them because the wrath of the Lamb is coming upon the earth. It says in verse 16 of chapter 6, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, Nikki, just hearing that sentence, who is pouring out wrath on the earth? The Lamb, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And we learned earlier in chapters 4 and 5 that he was the only one worthy to take the title deed and open those seals that start the judgments. And he's worthy to do that because he died. He took care of sin for the world. And he became the perfect Israel, the perfect sacrifice, the eternal lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that qualifies him to do this. And it qualifies him to pour out judgment on those who don't believe. It's a very gospel picture, right? And at this point, it's making sense based on how we read scripture in context. Well, I listened to Randy Roberts talk about this particular passage, and he denied that that wrath is coming from the lamb. And he described it in a way that makes sense with my old Adventist understanding. It was convoluted. It was a little hard to track. But I went back and I transcribed some of the words where he explained it. And I just want to share it because I think people who hear this will resonate with it if you've been Adventist. This sort of describes how we always thought about God and Jesus and Satan. We are tempted to think, and some have suggested, that all of this cataclysmic destruction is being caused by God. God is behind all of this. Do you remember our first week? The name of the foe, the arch enemy in Revelation? Diabolos. Diabolos, you remember what that name means? It literally translated, this is his title, it's literally translated slanderer. Accuser, mudslinger. Do you know what a slanderer does, a mudslinger does? Creates all kinds of havoc and then points at someone else. Uh, He did it. She did it. They're the ones you need to look at. That's the job of this person. Any of you who are teachers know there's that kid. I was going to say something else. There's that kid in the classroom who creates havoc. And it's like, no, 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 no. He, He did it. That's the job of this person, to create havoc and then say, God did it. That's the kind of God you're dealing with. You can't trust him. Well, right there, we hear Ellen White reflected, don't Mm -hmm, we? mm -hmm. Yeah. And Randy went on. Now, what's curious is throughout these 
verses here, as the seals are being broken in preparation for opening the scroll, there is the occurrence of what some scholars call the divine passive. Such and so was permitted to. Such and so was permitted. Well, who's doing the permitting? Who's behind this? Some scholars say it's God. I beg to differ. Not just alone. Sigvid Tonstad, whose, whose statement I'm going to read in just a moment, is in the same place, along with a variety of other Revelation scholars. And I just have to insert here that Sigvid Tonstad is an Adventist who works at Loma Linda University and has written a commentary on the book of Revelation. First of all, Nikki, the divine passive? The Bible never describes God as passive. God is not passive. God is sovereign over everything, including evil. But he goes on. You see, the divine passive functions because the one who is creating this havoc wants to stay behind the scenes, doesn't want to be known, wants to hide. He's saying that it's written in the divine passive. And the reason it's written in the divine passive is because Satan wants to stay behind the scenes. So therefore... He's saying that Satan had a role in the writing of John's revelation. Well, you know, that's, I don't know how else to take it except that way. The fact is, I know Adventism does not believe that the Bible is inerrant. I know Adventism does not believe that the words mean what the words say. They think of the Bible as being somewhat relative, that the people who wrote it wrote the thoughts that God gave them, and they interpreted the thoughts according to their own worldview and experience. So Satan can influence the biblical writers as they're writing scripture, but he can't touch Ellen. In a way, yeah. Except Adventists will say Ellen made mistakes. Okay. And since she was inspired, just like the Bible writers are inspired, the Bible writers could make mistakes too. And we have to figure out where those mistakes are and figure out how to harmonize it all. So he goes on. When you're dealing with a slanderer, their greatest weapon is deception and hiding. And as he said those words, I thought to myself, yeah, that's Adventism. Then he went on. When you're te- dealing with the truth-telling lamb, the greatest weapon is trust and truth. So in talking about one of the, one of the writers, which will ultimately apply to all of them, Tonstadt says this, a reading sensitized to conflict, meaning to the cosmic conflict, sees God acting by permission while Satan acts by commission. In other words, God is allowing certain things. Satan is deciding, very definitely choosing to do certain things. Now, are you tracking? I found myself so confused by this. I went back and listened and wrote it down and reread it. And I think I know what he's saying, but this is not the God of scripture. No, this is confusion. Total confusion. He goes on. By the logic of divine permission, the second writer was permitted to take peace from the earth. By the logic of demonic commission, this writer was commissioned to take peace from the earth. These are not mutually exclusive options, but actions viewed from complementary perspectives. We have divine permission granted to evil powers to carry out their nefarious work. A consistent representation and use lead to the conclusion that all four writers represent evils which are not caused by the will of God. God does not will the action to happen, but God wills the other side to show its colors. Disclosure is a matter of necessity. 
Are you confused? Scripture is very clear that God can use one vessel for destruction and one vessel for a holy use for his own glory. This doesn't mean that Satan's in charge here. Not at all. But to keep the great controversy worldview intact, you really have to have evil all originating with Satan, and you have to have judgment coming from Satan because God is love. And Randy kept reiterating that. God is love. This is where they always break down. They can't grasp, not that any of us can fully grasp divine simplicity, but they're not even willing to consider it. No. That God can be holy and just and righteous at the same time that he is love. God cannot be love. Love cannot be what God says love is if it doesn't include righteousness, wrath, and justice. So Randy concludes this little section with these words. When you're dealing with a slanderer, a mudslinger, You have to see what the truth is if you're going to assess things correctly. This creature, Diabolos, is in the business of you not knowing the truth about who's creating this. Create this havoc, and there's where you need to look. That's what, and people drink the Kool-Aid. Do you know how we know that? Because of what happens at the end of this. At the end of this, there is a passage which says this, Revelation 6, verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's how we know they drank the Kool-Aid. The day of the wrath of the Lamb. This passage is the only time that appears in Scripture. Now, if this said, the day of the wrath of the Lion has come, that's reason to fear. But in the New Testament world of John, a Lamb was considered the most docile of creatures. This is a wounded Lamb. And they say, you got to be scared of Him. The wrath of the Lamb. It is God we're dealing with, and we'll talk about that later. But for today, what are you talking about? The wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb saves you. Nikki, I was so upset. Now, it shouldn't surprise me, but this is the pastor of the largest Adventist church, to my knowledge, in the world at this point. He's being true to Adventism, but he is saying that the Bible is misrepresenting what's happening here, that Satan has deceived people, and it's not God pouring out judgments on earth. That's evil. That's like the snake in the garden. Did God really say? Yes. That is twisting the word of God, and it reveals their doctrine on scripture. Totally does, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So all of this leads me to say, in answer to your initial question, yes, I believe I did think all this bad stuff was coming from Satan, and that God, in his omniscient passiveness, was sitting back and letting Satan play out his hand, because, as Ellen said, he has to be allowed to do the worst he's capable of doing So that when somebody is still left on the earth, trusting God and keeping his law, the watching universe will know that God is good, God is fair, and God can be trusted, and Satan is a deceiver. And ultimately, however you want to cut it, 
Ellen's worldview diminishes Jesus, diminishes our one sovereign God, and exalts Satan to a cosmic, tragic hero. And yet, at the same time, I have to say I'm glad Randy's teaching this because it's clear evidence that Adventism is Adventism and has not changed. The worldview established by the Great Controversy, the physicalness of man, the physicalness of Jesus, the physical God that they always believed in from its foundation, is still affecting the way people read Scripture, and they don't believe its words. And even in the ways that some of the progressives may have shed certain aspects of Adventism, they continue to be anti-Christian organization masquerading as Christian. Yes. They continue to read the Word of God and say, but this is what it really means. That's exactly right. So today, as you said, we're looking at chapter 8. Last week, we looked at chapter 7, the interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And in this interlude, we learned some details that will help us understand what is to come, as well as some things that had already happened. In chapter 7, we learned the nature and identity of the 144,000. And who are they? We believe they're Israel. It says so right there, doesn't it? (laughs) And we also learned about the innumerable multitude from every nation that comes out of the Great Tribulation. These people in chapter 7 answer the question found at the end of chapter 6. The day of their wrath, meaning the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb, the day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? And we find that these people are able to stand because they are sealed by God and they trust the Lamb and follow Him wherever He goes. We're going to start by reading chapter 8, and we're going to look at what we're learning here about the seventh seal. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, 
Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is a very symbolic section of the book. And I was really struck by one thing that Pastor Gary said in his word search teaching through this chapter on the former Adventist channel of YouTube under the playlist word search. He was saying that we can ask ourselves how much of this is symbolic, how much of this is real or partly real. And you know, the conclusion is we have to assume that the words essentially tell us something that we can identify. The plagues on Egypt seem utterly implausible. And if they hadn't actually happened, and if we didn't have the evidence that they happened, we might say, well, I don't know, is this symbolic? Is this real? But those plagues were real. And we don't know how God accomplished them, but we do know that Egypt experienced the darkness of the sun not shining, the blood moon not giving its light, water turning to blood. We know that Egypt's plagues were real, and we have to assume that these plagues are real as well, and that these verses are telling us something that we can expect to happen. So, Nikki, can you talk a little bit about that first verse? The lamb breaks the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven. So I'm sorry, I have Randy Roberts in my head still. It was the lamb who opened the seal. Yes. And there was silence in heaven. This is because heaven knew what was coming. Yes. This isn't because he, he gave up his power over Satan to go and rage on the earth. Heaven was silent because it was preparing for the judgments of God to be poured out in the earth. They knew what was going on. Before this, there was celebration and singing and worship in heaven. And we're not told exactly why there is this silence, but several commentators have said it's the calm before the storm. We have some Old Testament scriptures as well that give a picture of this. Beginning with Habakkuk 2, God was sending Babylon on Judah to judge Judah. And in verse 20, it says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is a call to be silent as God is coming in judgment. We see it again in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And then another one in Zechariah 2, verse 13 Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Again and again, we see silence before God comes in judgment. Yes. God's judgment. You know, it's so interesting to me that 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 Habakkuk 2.20 verse, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silent before him. When I was growing up, and in fact, when I was a little girl, eight years old, and my dad was at Loma Linda getting his degree in physical therapy, I remember the choir singing this after prayer. The Lord is in his holy temple. I'm sure many of you will remember that song. And it was really a beautiful song. And many people, not just Adventists, used it as a call to worship. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. But the context is completely different. It's worship, all right, but it's worship with reverence and awe because, as you said, God's judgment is about to be poured out. We also see that there is going to be a pattern forming here as we look at this seal opening and we are finding that there are trumpets being revealed. What happens in verses two and three? John sees seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets are given to them. 
Again, I'm sorry. This is not passive. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of fodder in that sermon, isn't (laughs) there? God is not passive. No. And these are angels who stand before God. We know Gabriel stood before God. Right. There's been a lot of speculation about who these angels are. People will pull from uh, extra biblical sources, Jewish writings, and determine that they believe it's the angels that are spoken of in, oh, I think it was Enoch and Tobit. But scripture only gives us the name of three angels. Yeah. We have Satan, Gabriel, and Michael. Mm -hmm. And Satan was Lucifer before he was Satan. Yeah. Where scripture is quiet, I believe we can humbly be quiet, but we do know that Gabriel stood before God in the presence of God. And we do know from Paul's writings that there are kind of hierarchies within the yes. within the spiritual realm and within the angels. So these are high-ranking angels who stand before God and they're given these trumpets. And it's interesting that when we look at these trumpets which are going to start revealing judgments just before we look at them, it's interesting to notice that there's parallels between these trumpets which are going to appear here soon and with the bowl judgments, which will appear after the seventh trumpet is sounded. And I just want to share a little bit of an outline. I found my old notes from those word search lessons from Gary of all things, and I was able to copy a little bit of a parallel chart that he had made between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. It's so interesting when we go back and remember what we said earlier that the seventh seal reveals the seven trumpets. Then when we come to the seventh trumpet, we're going to realize that the seventh trumpet, when it sounds, it reveals the seven bowls. So it's a little bit telescoped, a little bit like those Russian dolls, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the interesting thing is that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls all end in the same place at the very end. But the judgments intensify as we get closer and closer to the end. And that's what we see with these progressively revealed judgments. What we're going to see here is that the trumpets and the bowls are somewhat similar. For example, the first trumpet, which we haven't read yet, but we're going to be seeing it, is going to have hail and fire and one-third of the vegetation dies. The first bowl is going to include painful sores on those with the mark of the beast. Now, those aren't exactly parallel, but there's some similarity These are all happening on the earth. The second trumpet is going to have the sea turning to blood and one-third of the sea and the ships being destroyed. The second bowl, the sea is turned to blood and everything is killed. The third trumpet is a falling star that poisons one-third of the fresh water on the earth. The third bowl is going to be fresh water turned to blood and it's going to announce God's judgments in a bigger way. The fourth trumpet is a celestial catastrophe. One-third of the earth will be darkened. The sun, one-third of the earth will not be receiving the light of the sun. One-third of the earth will not have the light of the moon and the stars. The fourth bowl, the sun, it's the opposite. Instead of being dark, it scorches the earth, and people will curse God, but they will not repent. The fifth trumpet The abyss is opened, the bottomless pit, and strange locust-like creatures that seem to be quite demonic will come out and inflict five months of torment on those who do not have the seal of God. 
It'll be on people. The fifth bowl will be painful sores on the people in the beast's kingdom, and God is cursed by them. The sixth trumpet will be four angels at the Euphrates who will kill one-third of the earth of the unrepentant people. The sixth bowl will again be featuring the Euphrates River. It will be opened. The king of the east, demons, and nations will gather for war. And finally, the seventh trumpet will announce the earth becoming the kingdom of the Lamb, and there will be praise. The seventh bowl will be in heaven. It is done. Babylon will be judged, and hail will fall, and there will be upheavals on the earth. Okay, so we've looked at that comparison There are other things we can conclude about these judgments as well. Nikki, you were mentioning some of them. Yeah. So in chapter eight, the first trumpets are going to affect the earth, the creation, which interestingly makes me think of Romans chapter one, where the people suppress the truth and they worship the creation rather than the creator. But here we have God's judgment affecting creation, which does have an effect on humanity. They're suffering because of it. Mm -hmm. It will be in the last judgments, the last trumpets, that we see direct judgment on the people. That is interesting, because people will suffer in those first four judgments because all of their surroundings, the weather, the night, the day, the climate, everything will be affected, and that affects their life. Mm -hmm. But their person will be affected in the last ones. And if we remember too from last week, these angels were standing there ready to blow these trumpets and that angel came out and said, wait, don't touch any of the earth until the 144,000 are sealed. So they're sealed and now here we are and we're watching these judgments get poured out on the earth, on the creation. You know, it's interesting too that these plagues, while not exactly parallel to the plagues of Egypt, there is an echo. Mm -hmm. There is an echo. In Egypt, for example, the Nile was turned to blood. And here we have both trumpets and bowls with water being turned to blood. We have in Egypt in the seventh plague, hail. And here in the very first trumpet, we have hail again. Now it's hail of a different sort because it has fire and things are burned, which is really interesting. It's still hail. That's an echo. The eighth Egyptian plague was locusts, and here we have these very strange locusty, scorpion-like creatures from the abyss. And the ninth plague in Egypt was darkness, and here we have the fourth trumpet and the fifth bowl, and we have darkness again. So I want to say again, we look back at Egypt, and we know what those plagues were, and we know that those things actually happened. We don't know exactly how but we know they did. And we can know that when God says these things are going to happen, they will happen. And we don't have to necessarily look for helicopters or strange technology to explain them. God can do this just as He said He will do it. Like, who could have predicted that there would be darkness with no light of the sun back in Egypt? But yet it happened. Yeah. And it's also interesting, when I was going through the story of God pouring out judgment on Egypt with my Sunday school kids a year or so ago now, we realized that so many of the plagues that he sent directly opposed the power of their false gods. Each one of them did. And while 
at this moment in time, we are not seeing a lot of worship of those Egyptian gods. Right. We do, like I said in Romans 1, we do see people who are suppressing truth and that they worship the creation rather than the creator in both instances, in Egypt with Pharaoh. And as we read through Revelation, as these judgments are poured out on unbelievers, the unbelievers are hardened. Their hearts are hardened and they continue to resist all the way to the end when they cry out for the rocks to cover them so they don't have to see the one on the throne or the wrath of the Lamb. It's interesting, too, that just like in Egypt, during these last plagues that we're going to be reading about in the next chapters, human depravity is completely confirmed. God sent His Son, but people didn't turn to Him. Now He sends His judgments, and they know it's the wrath of God, like we read in chapter 6, and they won't turn to Him. Instead, they beg the rocks to hide them, but not in repentance. Many will believe during this time, but the mass of people are only confirmed in their depravity. And I want to say, the Adventist teaching about this demonstrates this, and it's just so painful for me to say this, because I came out of that, Nikki. I have people I know and love who are still in it. They really believe that Satan is pouring this out, and that Satan has deceived people into thinking it's God. No, God dealt with sin. He sent his son to absorb all of the curse of sin, and he broke that curse. And if you don't trust the son, you will get the judgments of God. And they're assuaging people by saying, oh, God wouldn't do this. God is the tender God of the apocalypse. He will not do this. They treat God's wrath as a test of faithfulness. This is Satan doing this. And if you walk faithfully through this, then you are worthy to be with God. It's very dark. It's what Eve did with the snake. You know, he said, has God really said, like you said earlier, she argued and believed the snake ultimately. Verse three, I think, creates a a serious problem for Randy. It says, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. This is the same angel now who's going to turn and hurl this censer full of the prayers of the saints and the incense that were just given to God. He's about to hurl that onto the earth to begin these judgments. Either the angel is evil and he's being allowed to handle the prayers of the saints and to offer incense to God. Good point. Or Randy's wrong. Yeah. And it comes back to, are you going to trust scripture? Yeah. Nikki, as an Adventist, I saw the book of Revelation as almost like a movable, malleable document. Like, "Mm, it might mean this here, it might mean this here. It wasn't a solid foundation of truth. It wasn't the unerring word of God. It's interesting that when that angel threw the censer to the earth, it was accompanied with peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. You had some interesting insights about that. Well, it was really interesting to me to think about that because... When we read that 
When he took the censer, he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, there were a couple of things that were really interesting to me as I listened back at Gary Enrig's teaching on this passage, and I also read this in McGee's commentary as well. First of all, the fire in the censer, that image is based in the Old Testament, based in the tabernacle service. And what I had completely forgotten about my Old Testament tabernacle service (laughs) was that the censer that the priests carried was lit with coals from the altar of sacrifice outside the temple. The priest would take a coal from that altar where the sacrifices were offered, put it in the censer, and then they would sprinkle incense on it and carry it into the temple where they would put that incense and fire into the altar of incense that rose up before the curtain in front of the most holy place. The incense altar, which represented praise and worship to God and the prayers of the saints, that was lit by the fire that burned the sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So, the angel is going to take the censer, fill it with the fire of the altar, and then he's going to throw the censer down to the earth. Now, there's been silence in heaven following chapter 6, and there's silence until these judgments start getting poured out. And what were the souls under the altar back in chapter 6 asking God? How long until you avenge us? Yes. And all of God's creatures at this point are looking around and thinking, what is God going to do? They are waiting for his judgment. That's what that silence in heaven is. So the angel throws the censer to the earth, which is representing the prayers of the saints and the worship and praise of God. And the minute he throws that to the earth, we see the evidences of God's judgment and God's presence. We see lightning, thunder, earthquake. It takes us immediately back to Sinai, which is so interesting to me. As an Adventist, it never occurred to me that the way Sinai manifested itself to Israel was a sign of God's judgment. It was a sign of His holiness. It was a sign of His presence, but it was a sign of His judgment. And why would God's judgment be on display at Sinai? It was God's holiness. God had come and met with man, sinful fallen man, to give him his law. And his holiness was there in his presence. And there was nothing but judgment at that point. We didn't have a mediator. That's right. And the law, it was given to reveal sin Mm -hmm. and to reveal the curse of sin and to reveal our death sentence. So that's what Sinai was about. And now we see this again. Now it's interesting. We saw this evidence of God's holiness in chapter four of Revelation as well. It tells us there were lightnings, rumblings, thunder, and seven torches of fire before the throne. Fire, lightning, thunder, these are always representative of God's holiness and his righteousness and his right to judge. We have evidence in Revelation 4 of God's holiness in heaven. And now, when the angel casts this censer down to the earth, filled with fire from the altar, this holiness of God is cast down to the earth. And we see the same evidences of God's holiness 
as we see elsewhere in Revelation chapter 4, chapter 11, where the seventh trumpet is opened, and chapter 16, when the seventh bowl is opened, we see God's holiness manifested on the earth when the angel throws that censer down and begins the judgments. How can anyone misunderstand this as being from Satan? I have no idea, Nikki. It was really interesting and rather moving to me. Gary said this in his teaching, what is significant here is that the judgments are seen as God's answer to the prayers of his people for his justice and for his kingdom to come. When we ask that his kingdom come, when we ask that he manifests his glory, we are asking for his judgment against sin in that prayer. We can't have his kingdom and glory without his judgment first. Praying for the Lord's kingdom is praying for his judgment against sin. That was very sobering and compelling to me. It's really hard for me to understand how anyone could miss the reality that God is going to judge the earth, that God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. I think it has to be intentional because I don't think it can be an accident. No, Scripture is far too clear in other places. Take Romans 2, for example, where Paul is writing to believers in Rome, and he's speaking directly to the Jews, and he's talking about the fact that they have the law. And he talks about unbelievers and how unbelievers respond to God and in unbelief. And so then he says to them, beginning in verse two, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. It's God who will judge. Jesus said in John 5, All judgment has been given to me. The Father judges no one, but he has granted that I will judge the world. He is the one who lived as a man, a man who was never spiritually dead and was able to keep the law because he was sinless. He is the one who has the right to judge because he took our sin and died and experienced God's wrath against the sin of this sinful race. We are all sinners. And he took that sin and he experienced God's wrath and he broke its curse because his sacrifice was sufficient. Nikki, it is such a blasphemy against our Lord Jesus to say that Satan is the one judging the earth and God is just passively allowing it. What kind of a weak God is that? Who can we worship? Really, in the great controversy model, the only one really worthy of worship is Satan. He's the tragic hero. This is why when we talk about Adventism on this podcast, we very often say they have a different God, a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different message, a different worldview, because they don't line up with the word of God. So then in verse six, we read now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And I love this quote that I found in Precept Austin. It kind of gave me a picture of these angels. 
He wrote, No doubt these angels had been waiting for this particular ministry for a long time, as ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. All of Christ's mighty angels are intensely occupied with the progress of His work of salvation on earth, which things the angels desire to look into. The seven presence angels were surely the most concerned of all, and they were fully prepared. It just gives a picture of angels who have longed for the day of God's justice as they've watched all of this unfold here on earth. The first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. This is all the vegetation. It's like a reversal of creation week, isn't it? It is. A third of it all burned. And you think of the world, and you don't know which particular places in the world will be part of that third, but that is a huge amount of the earth. Yeah. And it's interesting how much emphasis here is on, like we pointed out before, vegetation. That will cause people to suffer. And it's also interesting that it's hail mixed with fire. We don't know exactly what is going to happen here or how this will look or what will be, you know, the components of this plague. But we do know hail. But hail doesn't burn. But something with the hail is fiery and powerful and will burn the vegetation. I wonder if it's it's an electrical storm. Well, you wonder. doesn't say lightning, but you don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's fire. Yeah. (laughs) So then, what happens when the second angel sounds? Well, this is interesting because John describes what he sees. He doesn't tell us what he sees. He said something like a great Mm -hmm. mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this is another large portion of the planet Mm -hmm. that will be affected by this something like a burning mountain. (laughs) Yeah. And it's hard to know because a localized mountain or a localized volcano, how could that possibly affect one third of earth's waters? This is something he doesn't say it is a mountain like you pointed out. But something catastrophic will occur that affects the saltwater seas and the places where the ships travel. So then we move to the next angel's trumpet. This is very interesting. So here we have a great star falling from heaven, blazing like a torch, so it doesn't go unseen. (laughs) And it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. So we had the salt water impacted in the first two, Mm -hmm. and now it's the fresh water. And this Wormwood is really interesting. It's a star, but it's named after an herb. Uh Uh-huh. Absinthe, I read it was called. And absinthe is also the name of a liqueur that is flavored with this particular herb, but it's very bitter. It even seems to have the effect taken in large doses of affecting one's consciousness or awareness or sobriety. It is bitter. It's very bitter. And it poisons apparently the fresh water. And taken enough over time, it can kill you. And the text does say that many people do die from this. Yes, which is interesting. You were mentioning this to me earlier, Nikki. One third of the fresh water of the earth is affected. And it doesn't tell us how many people die, but it does say many die. Because still we are in the plagues that are primarily affecting the created part of the earth, not Mm -hmm. the people. But the people are definitely affected by that. 
Yeah, I appreciated what Gary said here at this point in his teaching. He said that that the means of these judgments are vague, but the details are in the impact of the judgment. Yes, and I also thought related to that, it was really interesting that he pointed out that it was a quarter of the life that was affected in that first set of seals. It's a third in these judgments of the earth that is affected. And he said, we have to take these numbers seriously. There's an increasing effect, an increasing impact, and we have to take it seriously. It's not just random numbers. So then in verse 12, we read the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. That is very interesting. It is. And we don't know how that will work exactly, but we do know that there are precedents in scripture for the sun not giving its light. Mm -hmm. For example, the ninth plague in Egypt. We also saw this happening when Jesus hung on the cross. The sun was blackened from 12 o'clock to three o'clock in the afternoon as Jesus hung there and endured the wrath of God. It's so interesting that in both of these cases, the darkened sun accompanied God's judgments. And in the case of our Lord Jesus hanging on that cross, this was the judgment of God on human sin, which Jesus had taken into himself. How dare we think he will not judge the earth, the unrepentant earth, before he comes and establishes his kingdom, when he provided the means of our missing out on that judgment by pouring it out on his son. If we're in his son, We do not experience that judgment. And he shows us in vivid detail how we can know his judgment was poured out. The sun stopped shining. Gary pointed out when he taught on this verse that this is not merely astronomical. This is a supernatural event. Yeah, and we have no explanation. I think it's safe to just trust the words. So then in verse 13... John looks and he hears an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And I liked this quote from Precept Austin's website. It's given by Robert L. Thomas. He said, in contradistinction to the last three trumpets, the first four afflict natural objects earth, trees, grass, rivers, and the like. The fifth and sixth have men as their special objects, and unlike the first four, which are connected and interdependent, are separated and independent. In contrast to these two, the first four have only an indirect effect on mankind. Besides these differences, the voice of the eagle in Revelation 8.13 separates the trumpets into two groups. So now we move in the next chapter to the trumpets that are going to directly affect mankind. So as we end this podcast over Revelation 8, I want to say again, if you have not acknowledged that you are dead in sin and that you need a Savior and you cannot please God and you're unable even to seek Him or to do good for Him without His direct intervention in your life, If you haven't seen what Jesus did by hanging on that cross, that he is just, he is holy, he took your sin, and he is worthy 
to own and to judge the earth and to prepare it for his new kingdom. If you have not trusted him, this is the time to do it. He took your sin, he died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day, shattering the curse of death into which you were born. And when you trust him, you pass out of death into life. He transfers you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It is Jesus who pours out his wrath at the end of days, and you can escape the wrath of the Lamb by trusting him and being hidden in him. Join us next week as we begin chapter 9 of Revelation. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.